I'm Allie Gertz. And I'm Julia Prescott. And, and we're, we're going, going round Springfield. Springfield. We nailed we that. We crushed it. I am so excited. I mean, I'm just going to roll into it because Gotta you guys already in. know you saw who is our guest today on the show description. And um, this is a favorite of our previous iteration of our Simpsons podcast called Everything's Coming Up Simpsons here at the Maximum Fun Network. Heard of it? Heard of it. I hope. <laughs> Maybe new people are jumping in. Uh, Get out. To the, okay. All right. Only old fans. <laughs> and I mean old fans. You're, okay. You mean like what? The like buffet 50, crowd? 55 up. <laughs> <laughs> cool. ARP only. Mm, I like that. Yeah. Well, hi, AARP people. <laughs> um, meaning my mom. Hi, mom. If you're listening, I hope you are. Um, I want you and you alone to please welcome our <laughs> guest today. Um, he is a uh, former showrunner of The Simpsons, heard of it, and has a resume that is so sparkly and wonderful and nice. And I'm sure you're already familiar with so many of the other things that he's worked on. Please, everyone, welcome Bill Oakley. Woohoo! Woohoo! I'm waiting for the applause to die down. <laughs> Thank I you, was everybody. terrified for a moment that, like, you just purely hung up uh, the moment I started my very sweaty intro. <laughs> I know I just want to say thank you everybody I appreciate obviously the, I know you're applauding in your car right. or in your gym or whatever you're doing so thank you and I'm, I, I'm it's my pleasure to be here <laughs> we're super excited to have you on this version of the show because we really really want to be able to talk to Simpsons people uh, about their time before the Simpsons and after and kind of just get a fuller picture of who made the best show of all time and it's it, it's a very freeform show but we had a couple of things that we definitely want to talk about. One we want to start with is a little unpleasant. <laughs> what the fuck was Thrillist thinking? Yeah. Let's just dive in to the controversy of the moment. <laughs> Should we back up and explain the situation? <laughs> <laughs> Bill, you give us first a, a taste of what you do. I would be shocked if people don't know about your Instagram uh, because it's taking over uh, a new generation of fast food lovers. But uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your your fast food love and and lead us into what happened with Thrillist. Yeah, okay, I will. This is one of the things I assumed we were going to get to, so I'm going to just jump into it right front uh, right up front. Yes, this is not this is not my occupation. My occupation is still <laughs> TV writing. This is my hobby because it doesn't pay a cent. Although I have tons of delicious Japanese Pringles. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, you do get paid in like chips, and McDonald's seems to have a massive crush on you. I feel like every six months you post like some love letter that is like you know written in quill. You know, it's <laughs> they love everything that you're doing, so you do get paid in that. Unlike, for instance, Taco Bell, which studiously ignores me. Uh, <laughs> McDonald's has not taken that route, and, and I, ha I have to say I appreciate it. But I'm still like – I thought I was cut off the list after I didn't like their new chicken sandwich, and I gave it like a C-, <laughs> but, but no, this new one showed up this week. Anyway, so just for those unfamiliar, I have always had a great deal of interest in fast food and snack food my entire life, and I used to just kind of tweet about it. Uh, and then when McDonald's decided to introduce their new 
fresh beef quarter pounder, which was like um, a year and a half ago. I went out. I was going to tweet about it, and I was like, you know, nobody wants to read eleven tweets about this why don't i just film myself eating it and, and see what happens and i did it and i put the video on instagram and it got a lot of attention i mean a lot of attention for someone who had like 68 followers at that point and then uh i just kept doing it and it kept kind of building its own it became its own thing so now i'm actually taken seriously by some uh as a fast food critic not and also not just fast food because i do it's all the kind of food that i like which is like fast food it's snack food it's potato chips it's cheese puffs it's sodas, it's beer, it's sometimes liquor, uh, and it's also um, stuff from overseas. A lot of people send – a lot of it is crowdsourced material. People send me stuff when we're on vacation in Japan or Serbia or Indonesia, and wow. they send me reviews of like the new um, McDonald's things that are coming out there. Those are on my Instagram story. So I have, I have kind of over the past year and a half – it's almost two years now <sighs> – fashioned myself into an Instagram quote-unquote influencer. <laughs> you are! In the area of food. And it, it, it's um, I do get taken seriously, too, because people, especially like, you know, Yahoo News, when it writes about the new, whether a Burger King stock is doing, will quote my review no. of the new burger and stuff like that. So I, I have wormed my way into the official food uh, journalism thing. Um, although I still, as I said, don't make any money from it. Can I interject just for a second before we get into the controversy? As a, a viewer and a fan of your videos, I would say that, you know, part of the reason why I think that they've like gone to the surface of I would call fast food Twitter and fast food Instagram is because of the care that you give to these videos. I think we talked about this, maybe the live show that you edit them in your phone, maybe using iMovie, but you yeah. use like royalty free rock in a way that I feel is really inspirational. It's it's not royalty free. Oh, it's not. Oh, oh, whoops. <laughs> I have had to con I've consulted with two lawyers about this. And that's part of the thing is that I it's kind of in a gray area. And the thing is, since I don't make any money or sell any ads, um, they say it's probably okay. Now, <laughs> That's good enough for ads, me. I'm going to have to use royalty-free music, which I think will be put kind of a right. dent in well, my <laughs> Royalty-free or not, it, they're rock and jams. Uh, you've got like, you know, these like swipes that you use and transitions. They're just like produced in a way that I think is elevated beyond what your normal like raw Twitter video is. And you could tell that there is real passion there too when you review these items. And I also think that, you know, you being of like the background that you're coming from and in, in like venturing into this part of fast food, Twitter and Instagram, it just feels more genuine than like some 20 year old being like, this is another way for me to get famous. Like it, you could tell when you bite into that, you know, Doritos Locos taco that you really care about what you're eating and, and you care about your review. And I also uh, I, w I want to say that I am very happy and proud to have you on the front of defending the double decker taco as, you know, being uh, the greatest invention by Taco Bell and like what a blight for them to take it away. So I just wanted to say thank you for your service. <laughs> Thank, uh, thank you for, for remarking upon my service. And my suspicion <laughs> is that they're going to bring it back and that this was just mm. some sort of temporary thing where they wanted to stir up an opportunity to bring it back with a lot of fanfare. You know, that's that's classic. I think it was a fake. I think it was a fake out. But yeah, it, okay, that so sucks. in any case, yes, you're right. And I like look, I didn't invent this format by a wide margin. There's a guy 
named Dam Drops on YouTube, who who is generally credited with inventing the in-car fast food review, and his reviews are great. We've corresponded a little bit. Mine, I keep, I try to keep all of my activities confined to Instagram, so as not to compete with those YouTube guys who are also like, they got a million followers, like right. you know, Dam Drops and Review of the Week, and it's like that's not even, I'm not even in that ballpark. Um, also. The Instagram video, an Instagram video is limited to 59 seconds, which I think is a blessing because I don't, I would never want to do a 15 minute <laughs> review of any burger in my car. I think 59 seconds is perfectly adequate. And I think that's part of one of the things that people like about the, my reviews is that they're blessedly short. Just for people who probably are like, that name sounds familiar of Damn Drops, uh, the Oh My Goodness, Oh My Damn song on Songify, that's him. Honestly, one of the best songs of all time. I'm not sure if, if everyone is familiar with this. I'm not. Oh my goodness. Oh my damn. I don't. Oh my goodness. It's so songify that. Okay. Um, Julia, I cannot wait for you to watch this. Uh, but basically, I'll text you later when I do. People probably have uh, are familiar with the um, songify people who just will take a viral YouTube video and then change it so it sounds like a song. Right. That's how Kimmy Schmidt has their opening. It's based on that. It's an incredible song. I really would love for them to uh, turn one of Bill's Instagram stories into a, <laughs> a no. into a big hit. You're uh, hearing it here first. The challenge they, has been set. If they don't, you know, I know it's different. It's not as poppy. Maybe I'll do like an acoustic folk version. But we need some type of music to really, I yeah. think, uh, honor uh, what, you, what you're doing. Uh, yeah. Just a thought. <laughs> and and to, to have the your lawyer statements go from probably okay to absolutely okay, which is the Simpsons pod promise. <laughs> well, let me this you know what that sets up a nice a neat transition. The intellectual property aspect of this uh, of this genre sets up a neat transition to your original question. Yes. Which is this thrillist thing. So look, I didn't invent fast food reviewing by any stretch of the imagination, and I didn't but I do think I kind of sort of maybe invented the fast food award show. Okay, like, <laughs> you carved that out 100. percent Like, look, there's obviously there's been fast food awards probably for 50 years, like in restaurant business magazine, and mm-hmm. I was told there was in High Times magazine used to do one, which is very apt. But it's like <laughs> a print, it's a printed award, you know. It's like here are our five nominees and whatever. Like the the thing that I did was an award show was you know somewhat of a parody of a of a standard award show like the Oscars or the Emmys, and I'm wearing a tuxedo, and the whole <laughs> thing is it. blown way out of proportion because you know the fast. Fast food is a low rent thing, and and the comedy comes from the juxtaposition of me in a tuxedo awarding the best <laughs> taco of the year. So, and I started that like that was two years ago or nearly two years ago, and it's called the Steamies, which is uh, you know based on my my burden and my and my my curse and, and my blessing of being known mainly as the steamed hams guy. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah. steamed hams. <laughs> Do people yell steamed hams at you on the street, like when you're going to the airport? <laughs> Steamed hams. I didn't say they yell it at me, but they do mention it quite a bit. They don't, I don't get yelled at. I don't get yelled at too much, except for my political tweets online, which I get at, or my editorials in the Washington Post. So I... that's that's another thing we can discuss. Yeah. Anyway, so this is this. I'll just get into this because many people probably already know this. I do this award show called the Steamies. There are ten awards. There are my Instagram videos. They're fifty nine seconds apiece for best best type of item, best taco best potato chip flavor and i always get a celebrity a somewhat of a celebrity to present them and and whether it just be someone who's a friend of mine um and still well known like uh, chris onstad the creator of akewood or someone like ike Barinholtz, who presented our my big award this year wow. who's kind of a movie star um or also because it's an eclectic bunch like i got peter sagel from wait wait don't tell me uh, and i got kenji lopez alt who is <laughs> one of america 
most respected chefs and, and food writers. I also got Jessica Cisneros, who's running, you know, who people say is the next AOC, who's running for Congress in Texas. So anyway, that uh, people who've probably seen that don't need to hear it again. Anyway, <laughs> I would say that I maybe I did invent the fast food award show, at least as a, as it being a parody of like a Hollywood award show. Okay, so then you asked about Thrillist. This year, about three weeks ago, Thrillist.com, which, as you know, is a I don't want to criticize them too much as to I'd rather not I'd rather not scratch this wound that's healed somewhat. Announced their own fast food award show called the Fasty with a logo like a logo that's kind of similar to my logo and the name that's extremely similar to my name. And they also had the had the temerity to issue a press release saying this was the fast food, the first fast food award show of all time. That's so screwed. Yeah. Yeah. So they um. I mean, God bless the people who follow me on Twitter, most of them who are 99% of them who are not crazy, kind of took to both Twitter and Instagram to like tell Thrillist like what the score was. Um, and it, I mean, it didn't really change anything because Thrillist is kind of an impervious, it, it is impervious to criticism. That's sort of its whole nature is I've heard other people like uh, Ian Carmel of All Fantasy Everything basically said that they ripped his thing off and they did. And, and only about two days later, they did All Fantasy Everything ripoff of fast food which was exactly the episode of all fantasy everything that i had appeared upon oh my, oh my god. god do you have an ex working there <laughs> yeah <laughs> they're shameless you know and apparently it's not the only thing they've done so but like the fact of the matter is their thing i didn't watch it and it's not it was a you know a 38 minute youtube event and that's a very different format thank god it's a very different format than my 10 instagram videos rolling out two per day over a week and so you know it's over, and I hope that we don't hear from that thing again. <laughs> yeah. Know, I don't know what to it also had a little bit of strange cross-promotion. We were like, Del Taco was tweeting about it, and and um, uh, the Long John Silvers were tweeting about it. And it seemed like, you know, at least at my awards, the there's some pretense of fairness where we're not enlisting the people we're giving the awards to to promote it. And uh, that seemed a little fishy in my mind. Okay, that wraps up. I think we've covered my Instagram, and obviously – Anyone who's the slightest bit interested in uh, fast food, snack food, or whatever should check it out. And it's that Bill Oakley on Instagram. Uh, and I do this pretty much every day. There's new content on at least my Instagram story, uh, which is often foreign fast food reviews or whatever people send in. What I, yeah, and what I also love is that you do repost other people's reviews. So it feels very interactive in that you are forming a community in a way or just interacting with a community that already existed. It's it's really, really cool in that way. Yeah. I found that to and be I really don't, nice. I, I always, they send me the reviews and I always ask permission to repost them too. I learned wow, that early great. on and because other people, you know, that's, I don't like sources that appropriate content without asking. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So as you said, this is not, this is more of a hobby, uh, a passion project than maybe something that you put on a resume. You have done so much cool work, obviously, that people love and adore. We recently interviewed Josh about some of the projects that you guys had worked on. But you had told us that there were a couple things that never were filmed uh, that you guys had worked on, some pilots. Can you share anything about that? Oh, yeah. I got about seven things here. That, like, I know <laughs> yes. that like, before, when you guys, as a roadmap for Josh's episode, which was terrific, by the way, you guys were using our IMDb, which only lists projects that were actually made. Right. And I, that only represents probably about 30% of the projects we've done over the years. And, and also... As we progress further, I can talk about projects that we've done separately, too, because we started, as you discussed, we started working separately around 2010. 
Yeah. Um, so, but there's a number of fairly interesting projects we did together that are worthy of talking about. One of which I would like to discuss is our foray into the world of movies. Yeah. Which fucking sucks. The world of movies. <laughs> sucks. Yeah. You know, like, I, like screen. I think the thing about like screen. I think there's a certain level of screenwriter who is very in demand, and and you know always is getting asked to do expensive you know, two week punch ups for a hundred thousand dollars and stuff like that. And I think the rest of screenwriters are kind of like the working stiffs and, and there's so much stuff that the writer's guild has been fighting against for de- for more than a decade now, like sweepstakes pitching when it's like, they want to do a, you know, they want to do a, a bewitched movie, everybody, they want 10,000 people to walk in the door with a tape yeah. for free, you know, and like that's called sweepstakes pitching. Mm-hmm. I call and- that a bake off too. I don't know if it's yeah. the same. Yeah. You, gotta, you know how much time it takes to do yeah. that? Like, redevelopment is is expensive. And, like, that's like – but I will say that, that we did it for – we did it for a couple things. We did it for one. We did it for the Gilgan's Island movie. Wow. Which, and, and we got it. And <gasps> we were going to make the Gilgan's Island movie. And this was, this was actually extremely – I think the thing is that a lot of people think Gilligan's Island is stupid and the Brady Bunch is stupid and the work of Sherwood Schwartz is crummy, but we love Sherwood Schwartz, man. He's one of my greatest heroes in the history of television. Like the Brady, I have a religious devotion to the Brady Bunch. Me too. Me too. Ah, I'm glad to hear And the Brady Bunch movies were fucking great. Yeah, they honestly were. I agree. I agree. I think that was the Woodstock of our generation. Yes. Yeah, I'm like, but I'm 15 years older than you guys or whatever, so I don't know. Yeah, we're old souls. (laughs) Listen, we're children of divorce with cool dads. (laughs) The Rugrats movie was your Woodstock. No, get out of here. (laughs) Okay, fine, Pokemon movie. Um, Oh, my God. Anyway, so like this... So at the Brady, so when we went, we came up with this take for Bill Guns Island, which was basically just kind of weaving together all the greatest episodes, like the seven greatest episodes of Gil Guns Island that already existed and, and into a larger story about them getting rescued and so forth. Um, and we got it and we met with Sherwood Schwartz uh, a couple times and it was fantastic and he was really nice and I was so delighted because sometimes you meet guys like this, your heroes and they're assholes, but this guy was great and it was a huge honor to work with him and his son Lloyd Schwartz and we sold this movie and and it was going to make we were going to make it and then they just could he couldn't get the rights because you know what Sherwood Schwartz does not own all the rights to Gilligan's Island uh, Phil Silvers <laughs> the estate of Phil Silvers owns the rights to Gilligan's Island and so basically over the course of the next several years it just gradually fell apart because they couldn't get the rights the Schwartzes could not get the rights to their own oh show oh my god from the estate of Phil Silvers. So that was one thing we did. Then we did, I think we basically did a, a grand total of maybe four or five other movie things. Oh, um, w- would it be okay if I interjected with uh, with a Gilligan's Island story? Yeah. Uh, so uh, I was just thinking about how when I had started working at Mad Magazine, um, a lot of crazy people are mad fans. A lot of really normal, amazing people are mad fans. But <laughs> uh-huh. wow, <laughs> yeah, you can um, say that about so many things in Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, wow. I mean, it takes a certain type of person who's going to find out how to contact an editor right. at Mad. You know, I got this message. It's already so bad. Um, this is a direct message to my personal Twitter account. Uh, this guy said, a smart, funny cutie like you should want Mad Magazine to adapt my book as a special issue uh, about Trump's island. It's hilarious. And, it's, and all it needs is illustrations. Plus, Gilligan's Island is owned by Warner Brothers. So it would be very easy to do, you smart, funny cutie you. Help me sell this and I will like you on J-Date. Wow, um, he Jesus can... Christ. 
Yeah. I'm also not Jewish. <laughs> now, <laughs> Bill, have you ever received messages like this? Uh, <laughs> you smart, funny, cutie, you. <laughs> I don't get enough ones to say I'm cute. I do get um, a lot of McDonald's. messages pitching ideas, but yeah, I could, I would, I could stand to get a few more saying that I'm. <laughs> well, what no. I what I like too is that, uh, also I don't keep my Twitter direct messages open, man. To mine the are public, closed, that's... but there's a sec- there's a folder uh, where it shows the requests, right? Uh, and then you get to accept or decline it. Um, so this was in my accepted or my um uh, restricted section but so he I follows see. up and he says he tells me how to do it he says all you have to do is tell business affairs to option the book i rep the writer then it will be bigger seller than your current compendium mad about trump uh that does not have any new material about trump's island uh and uh he just goes on and tells me why it's going to be great uh but basically his idea was to have young trump uh on the island in 1969 and so he wants to have a gilligan's island with trump do you think your idea is better than this? <laughs> You're uh, asking me that question? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a thousand times better than that. It's tw- 25,000 times better than that. Um, no offense to that guy. I mean, I can see, like, the thing is, I can actually see a universe in which that might be amusing for a page or two. Right. But not so for Oh, it makes me so mad. Um, <laughs> I just had to say that because when when else would I share my right, crazy direct message? Uh, so after uh, after that project ended up unfortunately not working out because of the uh, rights. Uh, what what were some of the other projects that you guys were doing? We did a couple other movies. Um, in this was probably in the mid two thousands, and both of the, like the good thing about him is we got paid to write these next two movies. I'm going to tell you about. We actually got paid to write them, and and the pay was pretty good, so it wasn't like all bad. But like the thing about movies is it's it, it, you know, you think that like TV development is bad and it is bad, but movies is worse. So mm-hmm. anyway, this, we did this movie. Okay. And this was one of our favorite things we ever wrote. So I wanted to bring it up. That was called Ruprecht. And it was about, I'm sure that you're very familiar with Krampus and you know how Santa Claus in, in all the legends that, um, you know, from the 17 and 18 and 1900s, Santa Claus had a partner and it's usually called Krampus, but he's also called Ruprecht who was to punish the bad children. Like the whole idea of Santa Claus, of there being a Christmas where, where everyone gets presents was only invented like by department stores in the, in the early 1900s. It used to be that there was a, a dark part of Christmas too, where Santa Claus's partner, who goes by Krampus or Ruprecht, would punish the bad children. And, 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 and the good children would get presents from Santa and the other children would get either get coal or get taken away in a sack by these by <laughs> by Santa Claus's partner. Right. I'm sure you've all heard that. Or, or yeah, gotten, yeah, I think so. OK, so this was long before the movie Krampus and before this was general knowledge. I think it became a became kind of a trendy thing, at least to like buy Krampus cards and stuff about 10 years ago. Anyway, we came up with this movie called Ruprecht inspired by this uh, by this legend and it was santa claus's partner and basically if you imagine that santa claus if you imagine jack black as ruprecht and wearing a purple outfit that's kind of similar to like santa claus's but looks more like willy wonka's outfit wow that was the, the character and basically what had happened is that that due to a, a plot which is later revealed uh, ruprecht had become frozen about a hundred years ago and santa claus had not been able to find him and it just continued on and it was kind of based on the partnership of Lennon and McCartney. And, and Ruprecht was John Lennon, oh, who was wow. kind of dark, wow. dark, very creative. And Santa Claus was a good-hearted soul who was just like – he just wanted to give presents to people and didn't want to punish everyone. And Santa Claus had become exploited by commercial interests so that, as we all know now, even total jerks get a lot of great Christmas presents, badly <laughs> yeah. behaved kids, and rich – 
dinguses are rewarded more than ever than they ever were. Yeah. So Ruprecht is unfrozen and comes back to write all this. And so it's but also like he and Santa Claus are friends and they have basically what happens is they have all these these adventures and Ruprecht just can't believe what an old softy Santa Claus is. And finally, he just kind of knocks him out and takes over Christmas himself. And and he gets he, you know he fixes the system whereby rich you know jerks get everything and and uh, he so anyway that's the general premise of the movie. I like and that. The thing is, it was a huge it was hugely successful as a script. This was at Disney and the coverage you know I'm sure you know what coverage is which is when you know most people don't read most executives don't read scripts they have someone write up a two page summary with a little review of it. Um, and coverage, at least at that time, was notoriously bad. Like it was hard to get anything to get a good to get a good review. And this got a great review. It got an uncharacter- uncharacteristically great review. And I think that they agreed. They shared our hope that like this would become a Disney character. Like Ruprecht would become a character that you would see, uh, you know, in the parade wow. at Disney Disney World and stuff like that. That's and all then, I've ever wanted. <laughs> and then so we were thrilled. And then what happened was there was a shakeup in the. Um, and the Disney uh, executive ranks and they needed an idea for Santa Claus three for the Santa Claus three when, and, and the one with Martin short playing Jack Frost. And so basically what happened was certain elements of our script, we were told were extracted for use as, as part of parts of the Santa Claus three with Martin short playing this character called Jack Frost, who comes to screw up Christmas (laughs) for Tim Allen. And that was the end of our wait. So because they bought the script from you, they have the rights to extract, like, pieces of it and just annihilate it? According to the producer, they extracted elements and ideas from it that are not really, like, what are we going to do about it? They own the script. Right. And and it's also, it's they didn't, the fact of the matter is that even if they hadn't extracted the, it depends on who you talk to, they still weren't going to make another similar movie within the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. With that premise. So our thing was effectively dead at Disney. So that was the end of that story. Right. Immediately after that, we did another movie called The Optimist, which is one of my favorite things we ever wrote. Um, with Sean William, you know, guys who you know who Sean William Scott is? Yeah. Yeah, of course. He's good. Remember when he was Stifler and he like, there was a certain period where he was, uh, he was, he's a great guy, by the way, where he was going to be, where he was like the next big thing. And it was like, he was it was after American Pie, and it was I think it was before Goon, and it was all, uh, this movie. There were a couple of movies like Mr. Woodcock, which you may have yeah. heard of, <laughs> and and Jerry the Tennis Coach, which he was starting in both of them, and they were both predicted to be huge comedy successes. So we were so lucky to get on board the Sean William Scott train, and he wanted this to be his next movie. And just with, without going into too much detail, it was a movie about a guy who was born without the gene for unhappiness, so he could never be unhappy. And he was always happy, and he always found the light. He always found the good side of everything. Um, and you know, which is like it, in certain ways it seems great, in other ways it's horrifically <laughs> upsetting. And so, like, and so basically, it was a story, a kind of a a quest and he met a woman we to New York and he met a woman and he became involved in the stock market, which which really honestly only works on optimism. And like <laughs> he, he made a lot of money and he had a room, but then like things started to become bad when he couldn't feel, you know, he could feel other emotions. So anyway, that was, that movie was, uh, we did a couple drafts of it. This was for new line and it was all set to go. It was going to be Sean William Scott's next movie. And then Mr. Woodcock comes out and bombs Ugh. and Gary, the tennis 
coach comes out and bombs, and they no, no longer want to make any movies starring Sean William Scott. So uh, that, so that was the uh, end of the story. Anyway, that's the kind of thing that happens not only in movies but in TV. So I've covered. That's all I want to go into. That's all I wanted to talk to you about regarding our movie. Our absolutely, <laughs> yeah. Uh, we're gonna take a quick break and then uh, prod you a little bit more. Hi, I'm Dave Hill from Before. And I'm very excited to bring Dave Hill's podcasting incident back to Maximum Fun, where it belongs. You can get brand new episodes every Friday on MaximumFun.org or, you know, wherever. And while my partner Chris Gersbeck and I might lack in specific subject matter on our podcast, we make up for in special effects. Chris, add something cool right here. Also, we have explosions, animal noises, and sometimes even this. Dave Hill's podcasting incident every Friday on Maximum Fun. Chris, do another explosion right here. Hey, we're back. Hey. Oh, what a great break. That was a good prodding, too. <laughs> um, we really should have saved that for the podcast. Ah, well. So one of the questions I have, and uh, I think something um, people are kind of curious about is um, how how does it feel and how do you handle going through something where you really put a lot of effort into and you really are happy with the actual work um, and then it doesn't go? Uh, how, how do you kind of cope with that uh, yeah, uh, for better or for worse? Heartache. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited that you asked this question. And also, I know that my opinion about this is different than Josh's, which is why I'm, I'm thrilled to get into this. It's like, it's difficult you can't become too attached to anything. That's the pr- unfortunate thing. It, 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 here, my philosophy is you always got to have three things going at any one time. And, and it's actually been increased to five over the past couple years <laughs> um, because any project is liable to die at any second. That's the unfortunate thing. And for no, for no, sometimes mostly for a reason way beyond your control. Like I was just thinking about this before the podcast. You, you remember there was this going to be this show two or two and a half years ago that sounded like the best thing ever that was going to be run by Greg Daniels. You guys, I'm sure, know who he is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it was going to be an animated show on TBS, and it was starring Louis C.K. And, and Albert Brooks. Wow. And they were playing cops. And the show was ordered, and they were in production, and I think they'd already written most of the scripts and were already animating them. And then this whole Louis C.K. thing came out about Fucking him hell. <laughs> masturbating yeah. in front of, uh, uh, of shocked women, and he became uh, toxic, and the whole fucking show just ended suddenly. Damn, yeah. And that was it. And all the millions of dollars that had been spent into spent in this thing and all the work that had been put into it, they just shut the doors and sent everyone home. God, like, why couldn't a, they just replace Louis? I don't know. I mean, the thing is, it's like, who knows? He probably had ownership stake in the show or right, something. Right, you know, right, right. Like, yeah. could um, sue, and then that would lead to more millions of dollars, etc. Suey, CK. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, you said it first. Or a more tragic thing would be that the star of your show suddenly dies. Ugh, which yeah. you can't control. That's happened to people that I know in the past. And there's like – but a lot of times and the most common thing is there's some executive somewhere at the top – at a lot lower level that you never interacted with who doesn't like it or didn't get it. Ugh. And you get a call from the executive that you know who's like, unfortunately, so-and-so didn't respond. <laughs> And that's the end of your project. Right. And I will tell you this. I'm not going to go into great detail about this because I'm still – it makes me red with rage. A project <laughs> that I did last year 
involving a certain piece of intellectual property that I have loved my whole life. It's not Mad Magazine, but it wouldn't be that dissimilar from Mad Magazine, Mm -hmm. where I spent about a year developing this thing, developing the world's most detailed pitch for this animated show involving this piece of intellectual property. And then the executive that I was working with quit because the company was so fucked up. He couldn't take it another second. He quit. They replaced him with someone who was, did not get it. Maybe do another several more drafts with his cretinous notes. And then they never called me back like six, like, you know, and that was it. That was the end of the fucking project. And I made, Ugh. and fortunately my agency, which at the time was UTA before we all had to fire agents <sighs> responded in a really good responded the way you would want an agency to respond, which is that this piece of IP was banned <laughs> and the executives were banned from coming to UTA. And I, I salute them for that. But yeah. still that like, it, it was such a colossal waste of time. Um, I'm happy to, that's why I'd say I personally always have three to five things going and they're not, I wouldn't say they're going in terms of like they're sold. They're things that I'm interested in doing. So the moment I hear, I get a call that that project is dead. Well, I'm like, I, I drag it to the folder. <laughs> I drag it from my yeah. computer from the active projects to the dead projects folder, and I move to the other one that still has my interest in the same folder. Mm-hmm. That's so wise to do because I think uh, a lot of people that are just coming into um, pursuing a career in Hollywood think that you have to be all in on one thing. And for me personally, I get so much anxiety having any situation where all my eggs are in one basket because of what you're describing, that it can be so fickle and it's like so outside of your control. I respect, I totally do respect that point of view because I think the thing is that those people, and and I am this way too, they think that you don't really love, like the project, it's a common belief that like unless you're all in on this, on on Project X, unless you're all in on it with all your heart and soul, it's not going anywhere. And that can be true. That is true. But the thing is, you got to be all in with all your heart and soul on three projects. Yes, (laughs) absolutely. And I also will say, um, you know, I learned a a hard lesson where I may have been like too transparent to the people that I was working with that I was sort of balancing different projects. And I would say to other people that are looking to break in, um, work on several projects, but keep your mouth shut that you're working on several (laughs) projects, like make it seem like you were all in on one thing so that people don't perceive you and mischaracterize you as being too busy or distracted because they'll project onto that and try to fuck you over. Yeah. That I totally agree with you. That's excellent. So uh, in this vein, I'm going to talk to you about three other projects we yes. did that never, that nobody ever heard of that were also among our favorite things ever. And like, I'd say we've probably done 20, like we've done a lot of development. And as Josh said, we do like to pitch and we like to come up with new ideas. And sometimes, and some of these things were more fun than others to do. Um, and, but they all ended in some dumb way. Yes. So, like, <laughs> I want to hear. <laughs> Air it okay. out. This, you guys know who Alan Cumming is? Yeah. Yes. That guy, that unusual guy. <laughs> Who's right? in, in like, a production of Cabaret for 30 years off and on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that He's so funny. And we he's had this great. show with him that we, that we came up with that was so crazy. And it was like he and his brother, he had a brother who we would cast someone who was pretty, pretty much like him. Uh, they were, were kind of like twin brothers who lived in this old dilapidated uh, townhouse in New York. And it was based on the story of the Collier brothers who were those famous hoarders. Like they were kind of rich guys and they lived in this gigantic townhouse in like the 1920s and 30s. And it was just filled to the brim with garbage. And like they all they died there. You know what the story I'm talking about? (laughs) No, but I know Great Gardens and it sounds like the male 1920s version of this. Yeah. Well, it's kind of a legendary story. Like they're the most famous hoarders of all time. Oh, cool. 
And and so we created this show starring Alan Cumming, but they're they're starring Alan Cumming and a guy who presumably would look like him to be like these guys. And it was kind of like being there where where they they kind of emerged into the world and everything was new and fascinating to them. But they also had a lot of money so they could make things happen. And it was really it was kind of like an uplifting show. And um, it really had heart. And that also went immediately down the tubes because even though Alan Cumming was there and he loved it, he was in the room. It was not right. I can tell you it was not right for CBS <laughs> and, it, and it was not right for Fox at the time. And they were just like, what? I've never pitched anything where the executives were more like, what are you talking about? <laughs> That's a rite of passage in and of itself. And you think about like CBS and it's like that. No, it's totally wrong. And like this thing would have been a cable thing, but this was before this would have been on Netflix probably in this modern environment. But it was, you know, 10 years before Netflix existed. Of course. Mm-hmm. You have a history of doing things that are ahead of its time. Mission Hill is like such a like it's amazing that it came out when it did. It right. seems like it could have uh, come out recently and still been really fresh. I'm saving that for last. We're going to get to that <laughs> at the very end. Mm. bit of, of, of information regarding that. Um, okay, so here's the two of the other things we did. Two other great things we did were screwed up by the writers by writer various writers strikes. Josh already talked about one, which was the which was business class, which was probably the thing that we had most. Like I'm not going to get into details to repeat that, but basically it was on the NBC schedule. It was on right after 30 Rock, <laughs> and then they fired the guy who loved it, and they took it off Ugh. the schedule. Mm. So that was that was the end of that one. Um, another one we did right around that same time was this show called Boogie Fever, which I love, and I just read the script again recently. And basically, it was like it was like American bands. It was like behind the scenes at American Bandstand in 1979, and so like it was about it was kind of like a dazed and confused type ensemble piece with um, a whole bunch of teenagers who were always getting drunk and getting high in the era where rock and roll was transitioning, where disco was dying. And the 80, 80s music like new wave and rap was beginning. And it was it was so it was really it was pretty outrageous for TV. <laughs> and they actually liked it, Fox. And it was actually it, it, it survived the writer's strike. But then it, a lot of like six other things happened that were related to the strike that eventually killed it. So mm-hmm. that was unfortunate as Aww. well. And like as Josh said, everybody always says their show is going to go elsewhere. And it never, ever, no. ever does. Like. One t- like I-, I would say maybe once in our whole career we have even heard of someone we knew that were who that happened to because it always is dead and people every network has a thousand things in development that they develop and they want to do those they don't want to buy some cast off project from some other place you know yeah absolutely I think that that's a part of the industry that a not a lot of people know about or talk about that are have experienced it but there is something very specific about the kind of optimism that comes from striking out on a pitch or selling a pitch and then you know having the circumstances that you're describing happen like the people around your orbit tend to be those optimists that seem like really gung-ho about no don't worry about it we're gonna find a place (laughs) for it and it's I it's nice in the moment. It's sort of like getting a call from your parents telling you that they're proud of you no matter what you're doing. And you're like, cool, thanks. Um, and it definitely helps salve your wounds in the moment. But I think with the exception of people like Mindy Kaling, who, you know, had her um, show The Mindy Project get canceled and then picked up somewhere else in Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which is its own thing. But I think that a lot of the reasoning behind that having a second life is because of public outcry. When it's all development, you don't have public outcry being like, <laughs> no, Bill Oakley project needs to live on totally it's so hard i think it's slightly more likely for an existing show where the cast is all locked to these contracts right. and it's you can present them with this whole package 
as opposed to here's a project developed by some executives at a rival place that you had nothing to do with. Do you want to pay two, you know, a hundred to two hundred thousand dollars to get the rights to it? No, nobody ever does that. And the other thing, yes, you're right. The thing we could do a whole podcast about what people say when the project is dead. The night <laughs> they say the things they say to get you off the phone. I know. <laughs> you know, and it's like some people they just never call you back. Other people right. like are real supportive. And like a friend of mine was like, some, this guy told him like, you know, this isn't the end of the story. It's just the end of the chapter. And then he never heard from him again. Of course, that's like that's the way. It's like got to get people like, yeah, it's dead. The honest to the god truth is, it's a it's a ninety nine point nine nine percent dead. And if there's there's some sort of miracle, we'll get back to you. But yeah. other than that, like it's and it's unfortunate because when you write projects and you create them, as you said earlier, like you do have to pour your heart and soul into them, and and, the, and it's not like. I can't imagine what it would be like to write a book and spend like five, six, right. seven years writing every day and then have every publisher reject it. I mean, like there's heartening stories of, of things, of books that were rejected by 99 publishers and then picked up by number 100 and became like Confederacy of Dunces. Right. Yes. Right. Oh, my God. The story of Confederacy of Dunces is so great for people that don't know it, that uh, the author, the author died and his mother came in and brought this like script and like the the publisher felt guilty and was kind of like, yeah, yeah, I'll read it. I'll check it out. And then like kind of didn't for a while but then was like if i read one chapter then i'll feel um better i feel better about Mm -hmm. saying no but then it actually was like really gripping and great even though it was like difficult to read because of the type and like it was Mm. covered in like grease and coffee and stuff wow i didn't Um, know that yeah and yeah anyway sorry i just get so excited by that story (laughs) no it's and it's it's, it is a heartening story because both all creative endeavors or creative slash commercial endeavors that are also you know not creative endeavors where you're painting a painting just for your own satisfaction to hang on your wall, but a creative, a creative endeavor where it's going to have to be commercial and someone's going to have to pay money to make it or print it. There's sto- there's th- there are those heartening stories, which yeah. well, the guy did die. <laughs> right. Well, it's true, but the project itself lived on and yeah. it, it did become a classic. So and yeah, those stories are a blessing and a curse because they do incite optimism into people wanting to that they keeps the optimism alive just enough so that you endure it. And I wanted to share really quickly the thing that I hear a lot in those kind of development situations, um, and maybe you've heard it too, where it's like. All right, so they're saying no, but they had very complimentary things to say about you. <laughs> I'm like, cool, thanks. That's good. I mean, that is that we, you, you got to put something like that in there. Yeah, like, that's like the, the the compliment sandwich, the criticism sandwich. I'm sure you guys have heard of that, right? Oh yeah, that's the yeah. Way you, okay, yeah, that's a good way to deal with people like you know who are going to be upset by your criticism is to be like, oh, it was so good, it was one of our favorite things. We just couldn't make it, but we want to work with you in the future. There you yes. go. You got oh, your yeah, that's standard. You got your compliments as the bread, and you got your unfortunate bad news in the middle but that is a good way to deal with it and you got to respect executive what are they supposed to do i think some executives are total creeps but other ones are just regular people and this is just in many cases it's just it's a transition where they're going to be a real estate agent they're going to be a tv executive then they're going to be an investment banker right (laughs) right right. they're just a person they don't know what to do they don't know how to say this and like you got to respect people who do make an effort to at least you know give you a a compliment criticism sandwich or whatever as opposed to 
just never call you back, which fucking makes me crazy. Yeah, totally. I'm so glad we're talking about this because I feel like a lot of people don't. I mean, you know, people that are purely just fans of TV and movies and are watching it from, you know, wherever they watch these things and, and are maybe a little hip to um, reading deadline articles and seeing like, oh, this just got greenlit, blah, 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 blah. Like, you don't know just how rare it is. Like, it's like winning the lottery five times in a row to get something on the air. Yeah. And then for it to get a second season, etc. So I'm, I'm really glad that we're shedding a light on it. It is. And, and the other thing that this has got to be... <laughs> The critical part of this is you also have to do it while making a living. Yes. Unless you have a spouse who is a doctor or a high-ranking executive or whatever or someone or parents who are going to give you a lot of money, you also got to make money while doing this. And that's – it makes it triply difficult. You know, like – And as Josh said in the thing, that's one of the reasons we don't write together that much anymore is because you got to split a salary. Right. Which is that's fucked. crazy. And I, that, that is something that I think people are – actively fighting towards is making it so that you could be on a team and, and have higher salaries. But who knows if, if that will ever happen? Well, maybe that'll be sussed out in this impending strike, which I hope doesn't <laughs> happen. It? Yeah. Ooh, no, it won't. Um, this is more about agencies and packaging. I got two more. I got two more TV pilots yeah. that I want to go over. But um, and but do you guys need to take a break? I don't want to I don't want to be like the motor mouth <laughs> who takes over your podcast. No Dude. way. That's why we brought you on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I did just want to share one uh small story too about um kind of uh how how refreshing it is for someone to just be honest with you and say like it's not gonna happen Mm -hmm. this isn't from an industry point of view but a a little while ago i my friend asked me to help run the door of an event uh that we thought was going to maybe have like 40 people and i would just look at a list and then um politely let them into this art gallery um Instead, it ended up being uh, the art gallery was just a part of the thing, and it was actually like a secret Miley Cyrus concert, and like there were all these really huge stars performing. And like I would look at the list, and it would have like you know Lisa Loeb and like these bigger names, but everyone there is somebody. And at a certain point, uh, the fire marshal came and was just like, we cannot let anybody else in. And I was instructed to to only let A-list or or like really important people in. Um, but I don't know who anybody is aside from like the most famous person in the world. Like I would know Dave Grohl, but I'm not going to know like the the press person who and everyone is yelling yeah. at me telling. And I it was a horrible night <gasps> because I wow. hate confrontation in that way. And letting people down is a nightmare of mine. But uh at a certain point, there were all these people saying, we were instructed to say, like, just tell them to wait. And I said, like, well, they're not going to get in. Shouldn't we just tell them to go? They're wasting their Saturday night waiting outside for something that's never going to happen. And it's like, well, no, just, you know, you don't want to bump people out. And I just started telling people, like, quietly, just like, you're not going to be let in. You should just find something else find to do to tonight. find a gift. Yeah, well, I also would sneak people in when the people weren't looking. <laughs> but um, wow, that's incredible. Yeah, well, I I think it's really screwed up. Whether it's for a job or dating or anything, to give people false hope. Yeah, because as you said, like that optimism that kind of um, can fuel you in a positive way can also really suck. Like yeah. if you're if it if it becomes a little delusional, like then it really screws you over. Like I didn't know when I had my first staff writing job that because uh, True TV en- ended and they were talking to HBO Max and talking to Netflix, like it was being presented as like it is definitely going to find a new home. And so then when I when a different job opportunity came along for me, I turned it down 
turn down even the possibility of it happening because I was kind of just assuming, right. like, well, it'd be mean if I left uh, this other thing that I really like, so I'm going to stay loyal, I guess. And now I know, like, oh, any job opportunity, you take it immediately. Yeah, you cross that bridge when you reach it. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, but, uh, you know, not exactly a career story, but something that I found interesting of just kind of like, just tell people the truth. I would say that out of the literally hundreds of rejections we've gotten in our careers, I can remember three where mm. the person had the guts to tell us why face to face. And I didn't, the thing is at the time I was like, fuck you guys, what are you crazy? But then I now <laughs> I remember them. And each time I was like, that guy had guts and I appreciate yeah. him telling us why he didn't like it or why, yeah. why it wasn't. Right. And I remember this because one, we, one of the movies we pitched was like basically kind of, it was back to the future style movie. And, um, and the guy said, I'm not going to buy this pitch and I'll tell you why. And we were like, because you get right in your head. You're like, fuck you. You're, what, <laughs> yeah. You're so emotional. Guy, but then the guy was like, because you know why Michael J. Fox was the star of back to the future. And there's nobody like that now. And we were like, what about Frankie Muniz? From <laughs> Big fat liars. Frankie Muniz. Would you put a hundred million dollars into a movie starring Frankie Muniz? And we were like, well, I, I guess not. <laughs> and then we were like, Okay, well, thank you. And like, oh, I, I literally remember the three or four ones like that over time. Wow. Where the person had the guts to tell us face to face. But the thing is, the person's uh, you're going to be mad. You're, and, and it takes a lot of guts to face someone who's likely to be mad. Like, totally. You know, it's, it's like dumping someone face to face. Much easier to just send a text or ghost right. them, I suppose. Yeah, you know? yeah, it's true. And uh, yeah, I had my I've had my fair share of having to reject people um, when working at Mad because you get a lot of pitches. Some of the editors would kind of just ignore and kind of hope they'd get the hint. And um, that's totally, I think, one way to do it. Um, I personally would because I also try to pitch places, I would be desperate for feedback. And I would just say, like, we can't we can't do something like this because we already have something kind of similar uh, right. in, our, in our issue. Right. Right. Um, right. Or maybe you didn't know, but we've already done something like this in 1988. Right. <laughs> right. And it right. needs to be different enough. And, you know, but now Matt is dead. So who cares? <laughs> right, right, right. I care as a Matt fan. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Any behind the scenes details of Matt. <laughs> All right. So I'll give you these two other things that we did that, that are among my favorites that um, were not covered in Josh's podcast. One was this show, an animated show for Nickelodeon called Worst Class Ever. And I think he talked, it's basically was kind of a rework of those of those of you who already heard the Josh episode of this podcast know about our pilot called Ruling Class, which is based on our own high school class. This was kind of an animated version of that, but was with every all the craziness turned way up. And it was about an elementary school class filled with weirdos, like an Adams Family-esque uh, class with 30 different types of weirdos in the class. And it, there were um, the, two, the stars were kind of like a little crazy guy and a big, big fat oaf. And they were played, and, and the little crazy guy was played by David Cross. Aww. And the big fat oaf was played by Patton Oswalt. And it was such a great show. And like the thing is, and it was also designed by Lauren McMullen, our friend who's the Animation Genius Academy Award nominee and creator of the visual style of Mission Hill. And it was so good. But the thing is, ultimately, it just like, it was clear that it was not right for Nickelodeon. It was probably right for kids who were 17 and not right for kids who were eight, you know, yeah. and that was that eventually it got up to the level. It got all the way up to being animated in black and white. And it finally some executive in New York was like, we got to give these guys a reality check. This thing is not right for Nickelodeon. And he was and the, whoever made that decision was right, obviously. So mm. that wasn't so painful, but it was annoying because it was such a good project. And where else can you take a project like that? Maybe to Cartoon Network, but they didn't respond because it was someone else's project. Right. 
Yeah, yeah. there's like an unspoken truce too, I think. Finally, I shall conclude this television foray <laughs> with what Josh and I unquestionably consider our greatest script of all time, um, which is Great Society. Did he mention this at all to you guys? No. no. Oh, my God. This thing, this was the one we did with Tom Hanks. And I know he mentioned <laughs> briefly that Tom Hanks was in, like Tom Hanks, I think, had some, had read the documents and he attended, he walked into one meeting and like got his hat, coat and left and was like, <laughs> hey, guys. And that was it. But it wasn't like we were working with him every day. It was with his company. And his company, as you know, is probably known for doing a lot of classy things like Band of Brothers. And it yeah. usually comes from something historical bent that has a kind of a real classy vibe. I'm familiar well, with the like, Playtone Galaxy. <laughs> yeah, this was Playtone. And this was for HBO. And it was, God damn, I love this show so much. It was before Mad Men. And it was kind of like a comedy madman that took place in L.A. in 1966 at, at the Rand Corporation. And uh, let me just give you a little detail about this, because, you know, the fact that people don't know what I'm talking about when I say this is one of the reasons they probably didn't make it. <laughs> uh, the Rand Corporation is a government sponsored think tank and it's in Santa Monica and it always has been in Santa Monica. It's right near the beach and it used to and it's in a beautiful building now. And this was a place where they planned nuclear wars. And they planned the Vietnam War. And they did the hundreds and hundreds of studies about things that we could only dream about, many of them which were top secret and will never be seen again. For instance, there's a rumor that they did a study for President Nixon about canceling the 1972 presidential election. Um, they also did I – mean, that meant that's probably not true. But they also <laughs> did a lot of the strategic planning of the Vietnam War. And they did a lot of planning of nuclear of, – of what World War III would look like. Wow. And, but yet they were there right on the beach in Santa Monica <laughs> in the era where – like it was like Surf City, USA, you know, and it's like there then there was kind of like the people were smoking pot and they were like the kind of the dog town six years before the whole dog town thing mm -hmm. started. Um, so it was kind of like it was basically the tonally it was like Dr. Strangelove. And this was it was a half hour show, but I think it was more like a, it was kind of like this was in the era of Larry Sanders at HBO when they were doing stuff yes. like that. It was this period piece and it concentrated on five of the guys who worked at Rand, one of which was kind of a Matthew Broderick guy who was our everyman. Another guy who was kind of like a Walter Matthau character in um, in that nuclear war movie, which his name escapes, Failsafe, who was, who was the guy who was planning World War III. Mm -hmm. There's a George Clinton guy who ran the place. There was a guy who was kind of like uh, a William H. Macy, who was kind of like the you know the Vietnam dude who was kind of like the sh the schmuck. And the, and it was and it was so it was really funny like. It was one of those things we wrote without any regard to the audience. Like there were lots of jokes that you would have to be really well read in the 1960s. <laughs> but it was also – I'll tell you the basics of the plot was in this pilot, our hero, our, our Matthew Broderick, is assigned this task of picking five people who could get to go to the bunker when the nuclear war starts to best represent American culture and society. And it's a massive undertaking because who is it going to be? Is it going to be Miles Davis? Is it going to be Bob Dylan? Is it going to be, you know, and he goes through all the great luminaries of the time. And finally, he is so fucked over by every one of them that he just gives it to the cast of the Beverly Hillbillies. Yeah. <laughs> and, that's, and that's the end of the thing is that is the guy distributing the envelopes and the plans, like how to evacuate in case of nuclear war to the cast of the Beverly Hillbillies. I love on it. Set. So anyway, so that project, HBO was just like, we love this thing, but we don't make shows like this. <laughs> and and <laughs> our, 
our agent was like begging them and we were like please make this thing and it uh and it just died because they were mm-hmm. like we're not you know people aren't going to watch this we this was back right when sex in the city was taking off and mm-hmm. and they were like everybody wants we want a lot of sex we want a lot of violence we want you know this and we this show was a really uh, you know it was dr strange love um but hard but harder to get and they didn't <laughs> want to invest a lot of money in it so anyway that project if if I could push a button and bring back any project from the past, it would be that one. Um, wow. Because it was so enjoyable to do, and it was so fun to write. And I think it was general, It was very well regarded by everyone who read it. But it's just like, it's annoying when it's the answer is the audience is too dumb to get this. Yes, <laughs> And because right. what do you do about it? Well, that's true. Most people don't know who Hubert Humphrey was, and most people don't <laughs> understand, you know, <laughs> these jokes about – uh, you know, about Ed Sullivan and things like that because they weren't even born then. Aww. You know, that's been our eternal... We've gone down that road a number of times, Josh and I, of assuming that everybody has the same interests that we do and then we have been brutally brought back to reality. Oh, yeah. <laughs> multiple times. <laughs> but I would also so, say... That- like the references that you make that are of a different generation than the current viewing generation. I mean, we talk so much about how the Simpsons would like recontextualize these jokes for us in a way that we still felt we were able to enjoy them and not maybe fully get the DNA of the reference. But like you guys always had a a touch that packaged it in a way that felt very accessible. And I'm sure the same is the case for this script. Let me say, people didn't mind it when Mad Men did it. You know, <laughs> right. I, it's, not, it's not like this. It's not like I grew up watching Ed Sullivan yeah, either. Exactly. I was, right, I, was right. I was one year old when this stuff <laughs> happened in the show, and I read about it because I'm inter- I'm interested in American culture and history. And like as I said, Mad Men, our show was kind of the funny version of Mad Men. And this one place that did read read the script actually said it was like you know L.A.'s Mad Men, but like funny. And uh, again, people were willing to accept it as a drama, but they weren't willing to accept it as a comedy. And I think that's an unfortunate thing that happens, too, is that people have a certain for comedies. You have it has to have a certain people are interested in doing comedies with narrow, extremely narrow appeal, um, or at least if the narrow appeal is is not like young men generally. You right. Know? <laughs> oh, that's too bad. That sounds great. Well, thank you. You can read it anytime. <laughs> nobody ever cares about that either, too. So people are like, would you like to read the script? Nah, I don't really want to read a script. Yeah. It might be 30, 30 or 30, 40 pages long. <laughs> um, yeah. Let's take a really quick final break, uh, and then we'll close this out. Hey, if you like your podcast to be focused and well-researched and your podcast host to be uncharismatic, unhorny strangers who have no interest in horses, then this is not the podcast for you. Yeah, and what's your deal? (laughs) I'm Emily. I'm Lisa. Our show is called Baby Geniuses. And its hosts are horny adult idiots. We discover weird Wikipedia pages every episode. We discuss institutional misogyny. We ask each other the dumbest questions and our listeners won't stop sending us pictures of their butts. We haven't asked them to stop, but they also aren't stopping. Join us on Baby Geniuses every other week on MaximumFun.org. And we're back. Yeah, what a great break. That actually was a great break. You poor listeners will never get to know what we talked about uh, (laughs) unless maybe we decide to make that our bonus content. Anyway, um, uh, Julia, I think that you had a question that you had for Bill. Yeah, um, I want to know about your vinyl toy company, Bill. What's up with that? Thank you. I will, this is interesting because as you said, um, or as I said, rather, <laughs> according to myself, 
I like to have five different things going at any one time. And I also, I feel like I want to diversify out of the realm of television because I'm extremely nervous about <laughs> the future of television. Yes. Like I can't, I just can't imagine that we're going to continue to live in a universe where there's 900 new scripted shows coming on. And all these, I mean, obviously Disney's not going to go out of business, but like Netflix is operating on like $5 billion worth of debt. And eventually someone's going to say, hey, wait a minute, <laughs> this thing yeah. is never going to recoup its cost. It's never, and like several other places are doing that. And like also, is it really worth a million dollars an episode to make a TV show that has 5,000 viewers? Mm, you know, right, like, right. Is that, like at some point, you know, I, a good Instagram video for me has 20,000 viewers and it costs nothing. Yeah. You know, and like and uh, the guys on YouTube, you don't have to look at YouTube very far to see there's millions of views on most of those things. And like, I just can't imagine that people are going to continue to spend this kind of money on scripted television. Right. For much longer. So in answer to your question, I'm diversifying uh, my my creative projects, one of which is my Instagram, which pays zero. The other, <laughs> other is my vinyl toy company, which also pays zero. And in fact, costs me a fortune. But it's <laughs> a hobby. And this is, it, this I have to say, I really get a charge out of. Like, it's called Sight Gags. And if you follow Sight Gags on Twitter, I haven't updated it in quite a while because we're right now, I have to save up the money to do these things because they're, and they're expensive as crap. Like the vinyl toys, you guys are familiar with the whole world of vinyl toys, right? Oh, yeah. Sure. Vinylmation okay. and the, um, I guess the Funko Pops too. Yeah. Maybe? yeah. And then there's also the kind of the art, the high, the more art rendered end, which is like that. What's that store on Sotel? Giant Robot. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. those And all those ones. And there's a number of companies that do these kind of art ones that are the cost, the cost, they're very expensive. So I wanted to do these character. I, I basically wanted to get into this because I, I like those vinyl toys and I prefer ones, honestly, that are, that are more like, that are not so crazy. Like, I don't like, I don't like Funko Pops that much because I don't like the way that they look. I don't like the faces. I'm with you. Thank <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah, I'm against the them. the person in America. <laughs> I like the characters to look like they're supposed to look. Me too. So like, I get a Snagglepuss, I want to, I have to get one from the 60s because I want a Snagglepuss that looks like the way he's supposed to look. Exactly. Or Yogi Bear or whatnot. It's bizarre because the original Funkos were so great and like, had a character flair to them that... I found very appealing, and then I, I there's a whole documentary about this, which I think is on Hulu. Um, oh, I've seen it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's like the beginning. You see, you know, the beginnings of this company, and and I'm like right in the driver's seat with them, being like, yeah, let's do it. And then like somebody had the Funko Pop idea, and I mean, whatever. <laughs> they're recouping like a million bajillion dollars from it, but it's just not my personal taste. Same. It, I I am so with you, but the thing is, they're so cheap. Right. That's the thing that it's like when I get into this business, and I've only been into it, and I have a guy who helps me. He was a total genius in this, and he deals with the companies in Japan for me. And um, like this stuff is expensive, and the fact that they can make those Funko Pops and sell them for ten bucks a piece is amazing. Like because like it's you have to make the only way to make something cheap is to make a ton of them is yeah. you know is to make 50,000 of them or whatever when you're making a small number that's why mine are so expensive um and they have not come out yet because I have not I just kind of tease them as we move from step to step and basically I'll tell you this this is a scoop for you guys the first series is going to be fake advertising characters of the 1960s and ooh, they're like ooh. they're funny they're funny failed you know like the lucky charms rap the lucky charms <laughs> guy or the tricks rabbit things like that but they're they're ones that were bad or hated for whatever reason right that's great and so it's it is it's fun and I, I really like the aesthetic of it and we've got i've got the, a team of kind of designers working on them and the thing is though the first one the prototype came back from japan and it is so good but they're going to cost a hundred bucks a piece 
mm. because we're only making a couple hundred and the, just making the molds is like 10,000 bucks. So, so literally, if I sell these things for 100 bucks a piece, I'm not making a cent of profit. And I might even be eating the shipping costs myself. So um, because these are not the kind of things that people are going to buy. This is going to be the kind of thing that a guy who works <laughs> – a, a young man who works at an advertising agency buys and puts on a shelf. It's not going to be something that right, kid right. buys <laughs> at Target. But anyway, so it's, it's extremely fun. And getting to see the project, getting to see something made – without having to go through layers of executives and <laughs> is, is fun and getting to hold it in your hands is fun. And right now, basically, I'm saving up the money. The reason that there's been a stall is I have to save up the money to make the boxes because the boxes in this business are, are kind of a thing, too. You can't just ship something in a, in a generic box. You can, but like people often buy two because they want to keep one in the box. That's me. So. Yeah, I recently cool. was going through my because uh, my dad. I inherited a lot of my dad's taste, and so like for example, my mom has been clearing out our garage, and she has a ton of toys of mine. And I just saw that I have all the um, like Sig- Sigmund and the Sea Monsters and HR Puffin stuff, yeah, and uh, like the Yellow Submarine toys, and of course one. 100 Simpsons interactive home toys. Right, of course. <laughs> oh, excellent. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Well, hopefully, but all you know, in boxes. Hopefully... And then the ones that I actually played with are a disaster. Yeah. Feel free to buy two of mine as you well. You bet. <laughs> uh, when they come out at $100, spend $200 to buy two of them. And I won't be making any profit. But, you know, maybe down the road I will. I would, um, I would I, uh, while we're on the toy thing, I want to throw my own little uh, cup down into the ring. Is that a phrase? But, uh, <laughs> Bill, I recently inherited a full Simpsons Christmas Village. Do you even know that they made these? No, I never even heard of it. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. And and it's I literally just took it down, so it lasted till February. Um, but I inherited it from a friend of a friend who was going through a divorce, which I find to be the best way to inherit a Simpsons Christmas village <laughs> in a way that feels very appropriate. Um there was a millhouse divided and I I was the winner. Um but yeah, they're made by like the bona fide Christmas village place and they're like really, really nice quality and porcelain and they you know like even have um for the crusty burger there's like a little drive-through window and there's like a simpsons car that comes as like a accessory for one of them and all of that so i just wanted to i wanted to show (laughs) off i have toys too (laughs) that's fantastic i would love to see that or just maybe you should tweet a photo of it i will i will Um, maybe this is a dumb question but uh have you considered doing a crowdsourcing project for this because i feel like a lot of people would love to to kind of crowdsourcing is going to be is going to be this way i sell them oh okay cool great because i think it's like i can't i'm going to if a hundred people We'll buy in advance 100 of them. That will give me $10,000 to make the molds right. you know, without making any profit. <laughs> so I'm going to sell them in advance on Kickstarter or whatever. Um, now, in terms of like, should I get – could I get people to try to raise money in advance for people to help fund the making of the boxes? Maybe. I might I might do that. Um, I'd rather just fund it myself though because I don't want to have to get beholden to so many people. We'll see. On January 9th, you said, uh, now working on the design for the boxes. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's how long it's taking me to save up the money for the boxes, and I still don't have it yet. So, because, you know, it's not, it's not easy. And also, the design, I don't want to rip people off. Like, I want the designer right. to be paid fairly. I don't want to say, hey, will you do this on spec? I want to pay the designer that's the rate, get the box. That's designed. good. That's awesome. Finally, Finally. I have this piece just for, for you guys. We were talking about Mission Hill. Now, Anybody who follows my Twitter will know that Josh and I have been hinting about this now since December. 
something is happening with Michigan. <gasps> I you guys know this that Josh and I, I just I, I don't want to give too much information away and I don't want to get everyone's hopes up. Let me put it this way. Josh and I have a concept for it's not a reboot, it's just basically a continuation <gasps> of Mission Hill, but with a slight a slight adjustment to the way the stories are told and a slight adjustment to the character composition. Um and we now we've got it together. We have our pitch. We have everything. And we have gotten Warner Brothers on board ah, uh, to produce it. We still have to find a place to broadcast it, obviously, or put it, or stream it and, and fund it. So that's going to be the that's going to be the big thing. But uh, that's so exciting. We have it is it is very fun. And I'm continuing to tweet because Josh and I are texting about it. And just yesterday. This is a huge piece of news for us is that we found that Lauren, we can get Lauren back to be on board. And she's obviously, she's a genius and a critical part of the right. equation. So uh, she said she was in uh, just Yay. last night. And that's exciting. So I hope that we will find a place. Now, this is going to require finding the right place, you of know, course, that has an interest right. in Mission Hill and the audience of Mission Hill. But like, we will see. Uh, if that happens, hopefully that will be within the next month or two. Yay, oh my God! So well, exciting. keep us posted, and I'm sure you know everybody listening to this is such a fan and is so excited at just you know the premise of seeing more from the show, and you know it, it reminds me of like how Futurama got a second life, and you know those kind of um, situations that can happen in Hollywood that kind of defy parts of the conversation that we were talking about that are more you know like heartbreaking and pessimistic. I'm so excited at just the possibility of this coming back. Uh, it would be exciting. And the thing is, we haven't even begun. There's so many steps to this thing. Like, we obviously haven't spoken to any of the actors. Right. And so forth like that. We're assembling the pieces of the puzzle one by one. And we definitely have an interest in doing it. And the thing is, I think now, the Mission Hill fan, like, you know, in nineteen in 2000, year 2000, the Mission Hill fan base was laughably small. But now, <laughs> it would be a, now things have declined to such a state that the Mission Hill fan base would be one of the larger fan bases. On, yeah, right. So, like, you know, our 25,000 people who love Mission Hill, that'd be one of the highest rated shows on many of these streaming yeah, services. Yeah, that's like an 80 <laughs> shares circa the 1950s, you know? Like, it's it's truly incredible. There is something that is very positive about the landscape being so cluttered and, you know, almost diluted in that way where numbers have kind of flipped into being very impressive when they're particularly low. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Well, let's see. Let's let's hope that this whole thing doesn't collapse before we get this Mission Hill thing off the ground. Yes, <laughs> people I will saying, pray. I'll pray to my God. We're an episode for a show that 5,000 people are watching. Yeah. If Bernie could get as far as he's gotten, <sighs> Listen. I think That's that... Right. Yes. I think yeah. that we could do this. Uh, well, uh, this has been such a treat. Uh, way better than the episode with Josh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, Bill, thank you so much for coming on. So uh, people can follow Sight Gags. Uh, people can follow you on Twitter. They can follow your Instagram where you're posting the fast food reviews. Is there anything else that you want to plug? No. And, in fact, if you only follow one thing, follow my Instagram fast food reviews. That's the only thing. I, you know, the numbers matter on Instagram. Yes, I would they say do. That. Now, right. The number, right now, site gags doesn't matter. Uh, and I'll be promoting that once I get the boxes made. I will say one last thing about your Instagram food reviews. I really like that you reviewed the mini tacos from Jack in the Box and you brought a prop of a cereal bowl to see if it could be workable in a cereal bowl. I like that you think ahead <laughs> like you. that. <laughs> Thank you. I did. Well, I was actually exposed. They were too big. Like, that yeah. was my only complaint. They were delicious, but I wanted them to be tiny. 
Like right. they weren't really tiny. They were small. Mm. Yeah. Well, hate that. that's a good note for Jack in the Box <laughs> to think about yeah. what they did. Uh, uh, well, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was a blast. Julia, where can people find you? <gasps> well, thanks so much for asking. I'm at Julia Prescott on all the things. Allie, where can people find you? Thank you so much for asking. You could find me at Allie Gertz and all the things, and you could find us at Simpsons Pod. And Round Springfield is a production of Maximum Fun. We are a member-supported show, so go to MaximumFun.org slash donate to contribute. This episode was engineered by Jordan Cowling. Our booking manager is Jesus Ambrosio, and our senior producer is Laura Swisher. Swish. Smell you later. Bye. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.